0: We're both longtime MMA journalists, and for nearly the last nine years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, Super Bowl this weekend.
1: You know, for some reason, I was hoping this week would be the week where you would also call the world of mixed martial arts wooly. Is that too much to ask? Wild, weird, wooly, and occasionally wonderful?
0: i can throw that in there if okay. you want just uh,
1: try it out one week just see how it feels take it out for a we, test drive
0: we might be uh we might be verging on too much alliteration okay at that point but i, I mean you know i'm here to make dreams come true man if that's what you want let's do it
1: how are we ever gonna know what's enough until we know it's too much
0: that's true until, until we push William the, Blake Blake to the shit limit
1: out here you know what i'm saying
0: yep. yep no i hear you i hear you who you got in the big game
1: the big game, yeah. I've definitely I've been following that. Uh, you got for the, sure. uh
0: the Jesters or the <laughs> or the Alley Cats. Who you got?
1: Uh the are the blue bombers in this one?
0: You know what I realized is that I did not watch even a second of NFL football this year. I'm not a huge NFL fan as it stands, but just like with everything that's been going on trademark, I've been so checked out that like I will occasionally uh, check in on my Twitter on Sunday, and you know you know what happens when you look at your Twitter on Sunday. It's wall-to-wall M- uh, NFL all the time. In fact, the people who follow me who don't care about MMA must feel how I feel when I look at my Twitter on Sundays, and it's nothing but M- uh, nothing but NFL because some shit-eating wild men out there for the National Football League. And I just every time it happens, I, I I'm always like, Oh yeah, football is happening. We're doing football right now.
1: Yeah. I get a little bit of English Premier League mixed in there sometimes with uh, the NFL stuff on Twitter. Early on early of a Sunday morning. You know, you'd be just logging on seeing what's seeing if there's any big breaking news, a new war about to start or anything like that, and then suddenly you get bombarded with a bunch of shit about how people can't believe what happened with Liverpool, and you're like, All right. Um but let's see the Super Bowl. They got uh, Tom Brady's team versus the other team, right?
0: Yep. Yeah, and it's uh, it's the Buccaneers. Correct. Yeah. Tom Brady is now playing for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and Still, they will be squaring off with the Kansas City Chiefs.
1: I don't care for him. Don't care for Tom Brady.
0: Nah, fuck Tom Brady, man.
1: So I'll, I'm. I'm. Let's go Chiefs.
0: Yeah. How many Chiefs can you name?
1: You mean like actual Mahomes. like like actual real life Chiefs or no, members no, of the Kansas on the City Kansas Chiefs.
0: Kansas City Chiefs. Okay.
1: Yeah. Patrick Mahomes, uh Del Del Rey. No?
0: See, you you could be doing the thing right now where you make up a fighter and I'm <laughs> supposed to pick which one's real and which one's fake. Because I don't know anybody on the Chiefs. You could just say Marcus Washington. Starting left tackle Marcus Washington. Yeah. I'd be like, Yeah, it sounds like an all pro to me, man. Mm-hmm.
1: Out of uh, UTEP, fourth-year <laughs> yes. man, fourth-year uh-huh. man out of UTEP, Marcus yeah, Washington.
0: The, the, known as an offensive lineman factory down there, the University <laughs> of Texas, El Paso. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, aside from the Super Bowl, we also got a UFC card happening this weekend, headlined by Alistair Overeem versus Alexander Volkov. Uh, we're going to talk about that for a few minutes here at the top of the show, and then we're going to get into some All Questions Considered. Obviously, we didn't want to spend the entire episode of the show talking about this uh, ESPN plus fight night event that is happening. So we're going to we're going to mix and match a little bit with uh, with some listener mail for this episode. Hopefully touch on a bunch of different topics. But let's uh, let's talk Alistair Overeem versus Alexander Volkov first. Ben, there's there's you know, you look at this card and there's actually uh, some 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 faces on here, man. Corey Sandhagen versus Frankie Edgar is your bantamweight co-main event. You got uh, Benil Darius kicking off the main card. Uh, you got Clay Guida and Michael Johnson on this thing. Like, this is a surprisingly—I don't know if "star-studded" is quite quite the right word, no, but like, it's not, uh, not
1: there's the right enough
0: word. recognizable faces on here that that uh, you know, if you ain't got shit to do on Saturday night, you might as well check this out.
1: Yeah, I mean, it is still a departure from back in the days when Super Bowl weekend was one of the weekends the UFC would kind of circle on the calendar as let's always do a big event. You know, yeah, not too long ago it was like George St. Pierre and BJ Penn. Fighting on Super Bowl weekend. And now it's, uh, we're going to do another fight night event. Although, don't forget, Chad, Friday night is Knuckle Mania. Bare Knuckle oh, FC.
0: Okay, yeah. Uh, is that what the the thing Chris Lieben is fighting Chris,
1: Chris Lieben's on it, yeah. Maybe Paige Van Zandt is on Knuckle I, Mania?
0: Yeah, I believe they're on the same card. Yeah. so it, Chris know. Lieben has been saying that's his final go-round. This is his last fight. He's going to well. uh, dust off the Manic Panic and go, go uh, back to the Red Terror. For this for this fight, and then he's saying, that's it. He's packing it in.
1: Well, we've we've heard that before, have we not?
0: We've heard it from a lot of people, yes.
1: Yeah. Okay, yeah. But, I mean, always interesting to see Alistair Overeem and see what the what the old dog can still do. Somebody was asking me just about Alistair Overeem in my mailbag this week and, like, about who he could beat. Like, what he could realistically do in the heavyweight division at this point. And, honestly, I feel like you take Alistair Overeem against the top ten at heavyweight in the UFC right now. I feel like on any given night, he beats six or seven of them. Yeah, you know? probably he, right. He could lose any of those fights just because physically he's not the same guy. At heavyweight, anybody can land one punch on you and you get yourself in some trouble. But he's crafty enough and he's experienced enough. And it's just you can't rattle that guy at this point. Even if you do go in there and you, we've seen people catch him early a little bit. But he's got that just sort of another day at work mentality when it comes to MMA at this point. And after all the years and all the fights, you can understand why. I think he can kind of hang in there. And he's not going to beat the the Franny Nganus of the world or the Stipe Miocic's. But he can hang in there and, and have a pretty good chance against 70%, I would say, of the top 10. And so Alexander Volkov is kind of right on that bubble of a guy that Alistair Overeem could sometimes beat sometimes not. And it seems like every time now we're lining him up for one of these, it's basically the UFC saying, what you got left, Alistair? What el- what else is in the tank? Let's find out. Yeah, and- well,
0: he's had uh, he's had more than I think they expected in the tank yeah. here recently. He rolls into this thing four and one in his last five and in the last two outings uh, when he beat Walt Harris and Augusto Sakai, you could almost say he was playing spoiler there. Like they uh, they set those fights up to get to get the other guys over and, and Alistair over has proven he's still the, uh, still one of these old dogs to beat. And I guess we should mention the loss in that stretch is the last second KO to, to the biggie boy, Jarzino Rosenstrike, yeah. strike the one that, uh, that busted Alistair over face all up. And so, uh, you know, he's he, he might've been on the verge of winning a the decision there. He could be, uh, he could easily be five and zero here on a, on a real nice run. So you wonder what's going to happen when he goes out there with Volkov, the, uh, you know, the the spry spring chicken in this thing at thirty two years old. I feel like the last time I remember seeing Alexander Volkov was when he beat Greg Hardy, but that was that was two thousand nineteen, Ben. And now he's he's gone ahead and lost one to Curtis Blades and then defeated Walt Harris at UFC two fifty four in October. Uh also over there at the fight atoll. So uh so I don't know, man. You know this. This seems like one that uh, that could go either way, and could be another one where where or Overeem is saying not so fast to the uh, to the fight game at large, the fight world at large.
1: Yeah. Well, then the, that co-main event, that Corey Sandhagen Frank Edgar fight, that's a one where you got to think if Corey Sandhagen wins that one and looks good doing it, then he's got to be next in line at bantamweight, wouldn't you think?
0: He he'll be in the mix for sure. We got some listener mail coming up about. Uh, you know the the way title picture could could become a little bit muddled, a little bit more interesting here uh, over the next couple months. But yeah, I agree with you, Corey Sandhagen. One of the guys who's who's right there, knocking knocking on the door to be uh, to be number one contender.
1: I was looking at the odds for this one though. Old Man Edgar rolling in here as like a three and a half to one underdog.
0: Yeah, that sounds right, given the way things have been going.
1: Tonya, don't don't sleep on the old man though.
0: No, you never button. can. He's going to get up out of his chair, mm-hmm. neatly fold the blanket, uh, tuck his newspaper under his arm, fire up his pipe, walk he's, into the cage and, and you know, see what he's got. See what he's got left.
1: He's going to be like asking around, asking mother if she's seen his reading glasses. And meanwhile, they're on his head.
0: Yep, that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. All right, let's get into this. Uh, these listener mail questions. We got a little bit of potential breaking news here in our first Listener mail question from Cody Bernstein, uh, who writes, So this just broke on Twitter that apparently the UFC is looking to book Michael Chandler versus Chucky Olives at UFC 258 in just 12 days. Is this even feasible for Olives, who walks around a little heavy for such short notice? Or does this mean we could get uh, Dustin versus Connor 3 for a vacant title? Most importantly, why, though? Now, this, this uh, from a Brazilian Portuguese language site just broke the last hour or so before we record this, the last thing I saw said that the UFC had offered this fight to Charles Oliveira on very short notice coming up here in, in, a, in just a couple of weeks, but that he had turned it down. So, uh, yeah, and turned it seen. down from
1: what I'm saying, because at least in part, because the lightweight title was not going to be on the line. That's according to my my dude Aaron Bronsteder that I'm looking at right now. He says that Oliveira turned it down because the soon to be vacant lightweight title would not be on the line. Though, just to try to really quickly wrap this these guys up into a, a fight together that soon smacks of impatience, does it not?
0: It really makes you want to know what's really going on with the UFC matchmaking team right now because if you were going to go in, if the idea was to put Charles Oliveira and Michael Chandler together on extremely short notice in a non-title fight. And we also recently just had Dustin Poirier come out and say he might he might take a break and uh, see what presents itself, see what the most interesting challenger, most interesting fight to come his way next is. I guess you, you can't say Dustin Poirier hasn't earned it, but uh, if we're going to do Chandler and Oliveira not for the title, and you got Poirier saying he's going to take a little rest to see what comes his way. Makes you wonder what's happening over at Zufa LLC headquarters and what they were thinking about uh, you know, doing with the title, whether they could still think it's feasible to take another run at Habib or if we could potentially get Peak McGregor, Dustin Poirier versus Conor McGregor, the rematch, the rubber match for the vacant title, which would be, that's some that's peak Conor McGregor right there to, to to bounce in off a loss and fight for the vacant title, if that were indeed what happened.
1: Here's my concern, Chad. I'm going to do this with my hands to denote the seriousness of this concern.
0: Okay, okay.
1: My concern is, are we taking an approach to filling the vacancy of the lightweight title, assuming that that is what happens, that Khabib gives up the belt, seems like that's the way we've been headed for a while now, even while the UFC was trying to pretend otherwise. But if we get to that point where he gives up the belt, are we going to approach this thing as, well, we got potentially three guys at least who could fight for a vacant title in Poirier, Chandler, Chucky Olives. We really only need two. So are we doing a thing where we're going to say the first two to agree to do it exactly the way we want to do it when we want to do it, for the dollar figure we want to do it at, those are the two that get it. Is that cause that feels like kind of like a a thing you could imagine the UFC doing, and yet we were just talking about how it feels impossible to fuck up the lightweight picture right now with all the fun fighters you have in there and the the vacancy soon to be at the top. This feels like a way that you could fuck it up.
0: Yeah. By I just mean, doing just...
1: the best, easiest, cheapest available option.
0: We just did the Power Hour on Friday. Watched a few fights from Dustin Poirier and Charles Oliveira to get ourselves hyped about a potential vacant title fight between those two guys. And frankly, it worked because uh, those were all awesome fights that we watched uh, between, or yeah, for, from Dustin Poirier and Charles Oliveira uh, over on Patreon.com/comainevent. By the way, go over there and join the team. Get all the the, the high flying, death defying Patreon action here at the Co Main Event Podcast. But it does feel like what the UFC it does that's that feels like a very UFC move, right? To just sort of be like, we got a nice crop of contenders. Maybe we feel like we can't really go wrong. And frankly, whoever is going to sign the first contract that we send to them is going to be the the people that that we put into this fight. Uh, And and so we'll just have to see how that shakes out. But like, it would be weird, don't you think, to tie up Oliveira and Chandler? In a non-title fight, because I would think that one of those two guys would have to fight for the title.
1: It would be weird if you were not planning on Dustin Poirier versus somebody else for the vacant lightweight title.
0: Fair enough. Uh, Next question this week comes to us from Sean Diggity McIntosh. Nice. Who writes, pick one or die. I don't buy many pay-per-views because I have a tough time wanting to give Uncle Dana 70 of my hard-earned shekels. That being said, March has a couple of real motherfuckers. Which pay-per-view do you feel is more must-buy, UFC 258 or UFC 259? Much love from Michigan. That's the one shaped like a mitten. So uh, thanks to Sean for uh, making sure we didn't get confused there with our geography. Ben, I'm going to run down both the cards here, UFC 258 and UFC 259. You can tell me which one Seems like the most must buy to you. We've only got three fights finalized for UFC 258, which is uh, February 13th. So you got to think there's some more on there. As well, right now, the Wikipedia page is only showing three for sure. Of course, you got Kamara Usman versus Gilbert Burns for the Welterweight title, Macy Barber versus Alexa Grasso, uh, Pollyanna Viana versus Mallory Martin. Uh, you also got uh, Kelvin Gastelum versus Ian Heinisch potentially on this thing. Uh Diego Lima versus Remember the Name, Bilal Muhammad, and uh Pedro Munoz versus uh Jimmy Rivera, among other things. So that's your UFC 258 card, UFC 259, of course the the uh the triple title bill here, Jan Blahovic versus Israel Adesanya for the light heavyweight, uh women's featherweight title, Amanda Nunes versus Megan Anderson, Bantamweight title fight, Peter Jan versus Aljamain Sterling, and then uh you got some spare parts down there to round out the, the main card of that thing. Nevertheless, though, I'm just going to go ahead and prognosticate. You're going to say UFC 259 is the one that you would pick if you only had to do one of these two things, right? For sure.
1: For sure, Chad Dundas This is not even a tough choice for me. I don't. I mean, I don't, I don't know if we got our wires crossed here somewhere from uh, Sean Diggity Macintosh because saying March has a couple of real motherfuckers, only one of these is in March, but 259, is that if you – If you only have seventy shekels to spread out between these two events, that's definitely just overall value for your money. That's the one. Two fifty-eight. It's a little bit light. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Also, potential for a uh, for a lot of fighting action if you've got if any of those championship fights or more than one of those championship fights were to go the distance, you could be looking at uh, could be looking at a long night there with those. five round fights, you're stacking three, five round fights, one after the other. You kind of, you're gambling that, a, that one or two of those is going to get a finish. I would think.
1: Well, yeah. And that's the, they kind of stopped doing that. I can't remember which one of those early UFCs it was. It was like 30 something or it was somewhere in that range where they had three title fights and they all went the distance. And it seemed like they had not even done the math on that to figure out what it, what it would do to the broadcast and the broadcast ran over. So it cut out at the like midway through the main event for a lot of whole people. And the UFC said, okay, we're not doing that again, just because uh, you you can push yourself too long really easily there. And I think maybe it would never done it again until now. I think this might be the one where we're breaking with that tradition to, to try it again and see how it works. But still, just overall, I mean, Israel Adesanya feels like kind of a a generational talent at this point in MMA. The opportunity to see him compete, that's already worth 70 shekels to me right there against Blahovich. Uh Amanda Nuna is the best female fighter in the history of the sport. She's worth watching as well. Plus, the Peter Jan-Algermaine Sterling fight, that's just going to be a good one that's tough to call, man. Like that, yeah. that, All that together, it's not even a question to me which one is the better value pay-per-view.
0: If you had to pick one of those fights that was going to go the distance, which is the most likely in your mind?
1: Jan and Sterling. Yeah. I think it's not out of the question that Amanda Nunes gets rid of Megan Anderson. Uh Same with Israel Adesanya and Jan Blahovich one way or another, whether it's the legendary Polish power or just Israel Adesanya picking them apart. Either way, uh I'd say the Bantamweights have the best chance to go to this. But also the thing with UFC 258 is you got a title fight at the top of that one. No disrespect to Kamara Usman or Gilbert Burns. But doesn't that have the makings of a fight where, you know, it could be an exciting back and forth fight, but that one feels like a good bet to go five rounds.
0: Yeah, it, it probably does. Uh, I mean, especially if you think Kamaru Usman is going to be able to work his game and, and have his way in that fight, that sounds like one that uh, that he would do do that thing he does to Gilbert Burns. I think Burns Burns is probably going to be out there looking for submissions, looking for uh, headhunting on the feet. So, you know, if, if Gilbert Burns is pulls the upset there, you might, you might get a stoppage, but I agree with you. If I had to bet on it, I would say probably going to go the distance. Next question this week comes to us from Warren. He writes, why do I have a memory of Ben mentioning competing in biathlons? If I have totally made this up, can we hear, if I haven't totally made this up, can we hear more about what sounds like the kind of winter sport uh, that snake Plissken would be into? If I'm insane, please forgive me. Now, Ben, what, what Warren is talking about here, I believe is the Sealy Lake biathlon yeah. here in here in Montana. I don't know if you want to go quite as far as to say competing.
1: Yeah. In a biathlon. Uh and you definitely can't say uh biathlons, because I've only done that one, the Sealy Lake biathlon. Um but uh yeah, I'll tell you what, man, the shooting portion of the biathlon when you roll up there and you're breathing heavy from doing mm-hmm. all the skiing, it's harder than you think. They make it yeah. look super easy. You see them doing on the Olympics, and they're just like pling, 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 like knocking that shit down with their custom-made rifles, and then slinging them on their backs, and they're off again. And the one I did, you shot once from standing, and then you shot once from like laying, like a prone position. And I didn't hit a single thing each time. Like by the time, like I got to ch- to try out the rifles before the race started. They were like, all right, here's take a couple of practice shots at this target. And you get down there and the target feels very small and very far away. I think it was like 50 yards away or something but it feels like it's super far away and super tiny and i took a couple practice shots and i was like i can't even tell if there're bullets in the gun because like i can't even see anywhere where it's going and then i go and i do like the skiing when the race actually starts and you get down there and you're you're heaving like, your chest up and out of you or you're breathing hard and everything you're skiing in there and trying to get in shoot get out and by the end of it i was just like let me just squeeze off my five shots as fast as possible, take my, my penalty laps and be done with it because just trying to like st- calm myself down and slow my breathing down enough to hit anything with a rifle wasn't going to work either. And so it was just like, fuck it. I can't, I, I can't hit a damn thing, but it's fun. Yeah. It's a fun sport to do.
0: Meanwhile, in the Olympics, if somebody misses a target, you're like, this guy sucks. Yeah. Look what the this.
1: hell? How did it, <laughs> how'd they even let this Finnish dude in here? What the hell, man?
0: We should also note the Sealy Lake Biathlon, uh, more of a, of a, an entertainment just for fun recreational pursuit than like some motherfucker's gonna go race at the biathlon. You might go Sealy Lake, have a couple of few sodi pops, ski a little bit, miss a bunch of targets, make a day out of it. It's not like you're, uh, you're up in the woods training like Rocky and Rocky Four trying to get ready for the Sealy Lake Biathlon.
1: True. Although free beers in the warming tent afterwards. Yeah. So there you go.
0: Yes. That's what that's what I was point I was trying to make. <laughs> Next question this week comes to us from Gunnar Hammondarson. Okay. They did it, he writes, they made Chad's dream come true. Oh, I can't wait to find out about this. You can now subscribe to something called UFC ultimate monthly, which gives you absolutely everything the UFC has to offer for $20. That includes pay-per-views, fight nights, the fight pass stuff, you name it. It's all there for a monthly fee, but wait, this isn't a dream at all, except in the Henry Bemis sense because Chad needs to move to Europe to get this insane value proposition. There isn't really a question here. Just wanted to let you know that you guys have been being played for fools for your multiple subscription services and $70 pay-per-views. Well, first of all,
1: good to hear from 10th century Icelandic chieftain, Gunnar Hammerson.
0: See, yeah, if you're going to pick one topic to email the co-main event podcast from beyond the grave, might as well be this one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we, we, we know they get they get a different deal over there in Europe. Uh, historically, the UFC made that deal because they weren't selling a lot of pay-per-views over there across the pond uh, for a lot of reasons, but also because sometimes y'all got to stay up till the middle of the night to watch the pay-per-views. So they don't think they can get 70 bucks for them. So they uh, give you a different deal, international broadcast deal. Now, the UFC has been selling more international pay-per-views over the last couple of years, but uh, yes, this is the deal over there in Europe. Uh, I don't know if it's, I mean, I guess 20 bucks, pretty good deal. But at the same time, I don't know if I want to be staying up till four in the morning to watch uh, three back to back title fights at UFC 259.
1: Yeah. I, I still remember watching the John Jones versus Rashad Evans event, the one that was in Atlanta. And I was on vacation in Europe and I was in Germany, I think. And I woke up, it's like, like set an alarm at like 5 a.m. to wake up in time to catch the main card and catch the main event for that one, but then did watch it on the UFC's website totally for free. So, you know, you you give something and you get something, it seems. Yeah,
0: yeah. I'm still saying UFC gives me a flat price for all access. I would be, I would, be willing to pay a pretty penny next question this week comes to us from Mackenzie Chitwood who writes so if you're willing to answer Chad can you explain the ending of champion of the world available on Amazon and at your nearest book retailer I went back through the book to see if I missed something and I'm still confused if you don't want to answer to just keep that a mystery well I can't say I'll blame you Uh, I don't want to get too much into spoilers here but people do kind of frequently ask about the, the very end of champion of the world where the main characters see an airplane flying along, and uh, I don't. I don't feel great about having to explain it. You might say, <laughs> if you're sitting here on a show having to explain the ending of your book, maybe you fucked it up. But uh,
1: explain yeah, the, yourself. That's I, I like everything a, about this question. Like what the, plane the fuck do you think symbol. you're doing?
0: Okay,
1: it's symbolism,
0: man. Plane is a symbol for the future,
1: modernity, okay. the coming a, force of modernity.
0: There you go. And the, the characters react to it how they react. And that's uh, how you might say they, they are going to embrace the future. So there. Okay. Everyone the, should still read the book, though.
1: The plane is a symbol, is your message to Mackenzie Chitwood. Yeah. Okay.
0: He asked. Right. Next question this week comes from Danny from the Bitterroot. So a uh, local, local character here, Ben. Nice. Uh, he writes, so how about that Sean O'Malley and Tim Welch video that circled around Twitter last week? Just a couple of fellow Montanans casually, sexually objectifying and mocking the appearance of a co-worker and bragging about having the willpower to not get addicted to heroin. Definitely a bummer for us treasure state folks who hope that these two knuckleheads would represent our state in a positive light. Will the UFC do anything other than an apathetic shrug?
1: Well, I think we know the answer to that the last part of that question, right? Like the UFC doesn't want, want to have to do anything at all in regards to any sort of like athlete code of conduct stuff, unless it absolutely has to. And here's yeah. one where it probably feels like it doesn't have to, like it could just lay low, let it die down. It'll go away.
0: We have talked before. This is not the first time we have talked about whether or not the Sean O'Malley podcast is really doing him any favors. And, in general when mma athletes who everybody knows are independent contractors and are widely encouraged to you know quote unquote build a brand around their 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 fighting try to make themselves a little bit more popular a little bit more marketable there are a lot of ways that it can go wrong and so uh you know sometimes i think we got to take a step back and 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 recalibrate and and reconsider whether all of this kind of social media, various different ways to get the message out there. Sometimes it feels like it's doing more harm than good because if Sean O'Malley was just sitting at home uh, wearing his weed bathrobe and watching cartoons and then showing up in the UFC once every six months and beating somebody up, he would probably be very popular. And the last couple of times his podcast has come to our attention, it has not been for positive reasons. Now
1: granted I don't I don't normally watch or listen to or or interact with this podcast at all so I don't know normally what goes on but when I saw this clip being passed around they're talking about heroin and whether or not they would get addicted to heroin and then the whole like would you smash kind of conversation he's holding a baby th- throughout okay. that okay
0: I did not know that but you that You didn't does see the, you haven't seen the quote, He's holding does a provide tiny baby. an additional layer. Like
1: they're when they're talking have, at least for the part where they're having this conversation about heroin and everything, he is holding a, a tiny tiny baby.
0: Okay. Throughout the thing. Is that, is that his baby or did he just get it somewhere?
1: I I don't know. I again, I don't listen to this podcast enough to know, but like he's clearly he's been entrusted with the care of this baby and he can do that while doing the podcast which you and I have have raised a couple babies that's you're kind of playing with fire there, but I, I mean, I, I respect, I respect you being able to pull it off because I've yeah. tried to care for babies and like read a book at the same time, and it wasn't going all that well. So okay, fine, but it does seem like when you when you pick out those couple moments, you go, yeah, maybe it's not a great idea to have these guys just kind of constantly talking into a microphone yeah. because. If you're sitting around talking like you think it's just you and your boys talking, then uh, it won't be long until you say something where you're like, "That probably shouldn't have been for mass consumption." I because if I maybe I would have thought it th- thought thought it through more, picked my words more carefully, or just not even gone down that road on that topic at all. If if I had thought about where this was going, and stuff like this kind of shows you why why you why you should give put a little more thought into it.
0: Sounds like you're coming dangerously close to blaming the baby for this. Are you saying that the baby bears some uh, some culpability here?
1: Well, look, I I'm not going to sit here and be like I haven't held a baby and thought seriously about going and, and getting some heroin because man, that's that's when you need it. When that yeah. when the baby starts crying, you're like, Phew, sure would be nice to blast off with some heroin right about now.
0: Yeah, you know what the thing come about to just O'Malley in time is. for
1: child protective services to come through the door. <laughs>
0: The thing about Sean O'Malley, Ben, is that he is 26 years old, Mm -hmm. and I am glad that I was not put in the position of recording my every thought and word and putting it out for public consumption when I was 26 years old. So I understand Sean O'Malley says some dumb stuff. I'm not going to condone it, but I'm also going to say, who among us didn't say some dumb shit when they were... 25 years old true
1: i mean nobody's making him do the podcast
0: though. no that's the thing that's the thing <laughs> yes. when you're 25 you don't know
1: one thing I, w- I guess i am a little bit surprised that like i would think as a pro fighter and a pro athlete who has been through injuries in the cage and stuff and maybe when he's dealing with all his like leg problems and the the stuff that has kind of famously plagued sean o'malley so far in his ufc career Maybe he just treats all that with like weed and CBDs and stuff. But like, I've, I remember working on the story about fighters talking about the threat of opioid addiction among fighters and how it starts. And for fighters, especially, they are such a vulnerable population for stuff like that because they might get into a situation where they legitimately need it at first. Like you go through a surgery, you get a bad injury and then they, a doctor prescribes it for you, gives you some Vicodin or whatever. And. I was amazed when I was doing that story and and reading up on it, it was talking about how quickly you can start to get addicted to opioid painkillers. Like it's, it's within a matter of days. And I guess I was a little bit surprised that in their line of work and being around the people they have been around and seeing how it, how it can happen to other people that they would just think like, I mean you're dealing with kind of the same substance there that, that they would just think it, it's a simple question of willpower and discipline. Like that's the difference between people who get addicted to something like that and people who don't. And it's not, that's not, that's not how that issue goes. I'm a little bit surprised that just with their exposure to it in the world that they're in, they would not have a little more awareness about that because fighters, I think, more so than most other pro athletes are in a position where there because of like the independent contractor status, because of the way they, you know, show up, fight, and then you get hurt, we'll send you off to the doctor, but then we'll also send you home and we'll just we'll check on, in on you in a couple months and see how you're doing. There's so many ways that fighters are an especially vulnerable population for stuff like that.
0: Next question this week comes to us from Liddell Yazzy, who writes, Hey guys, so I recently moved to an area that can stream ESPN events, so I finally subscribed to ESPN Plus. I likely won't be buying pay-per-views at the current price due to the main card lineups and reported streaming issues. So I will be watching most pay-per-view events on the delay right now. I will be digging through old fights from the ESPN plus era, which looks like it began with Poirier Holloway two in 2019. Uh, I have not watched any of the fights from this era, but I have remained a dedicated listener to the CME and the Patreon. My question, and I acknowledge that you both need time might need more time to answer this thoughtfully. Is there some must-see fights? What What are some must-see fights from this from this era? So basically he's saying, what are the best fights to watch from the ESPN Plus era? One that we just watched on Friday uh, that I would wholeheartedly recommend right off the top of the dome is Dustin Poirier versus Justin Gaethje, because that is just a, uh, a testament to violence and yeah. toughness, frankly.
1: Well, I'd also think... You should start with going back and watching 2020's Fight of the Year, Wiley Zhang and Yuan and Jay Chick.
0: Yeah, right. That's I mean, another really good one. Hey. Uh, if you want to see a couple guys just acting like Yahoos, what about uh, Paulo Costa and Yoa Romero? Remember that one? <laughs> was that on the okay. plus? I mean, that was probably a pay-per-view. It was a, it was fight, a pay-per-view right? you one. Get, I think you yeah, could so get you it can, now. Yeah.
1: Um, I'd also think, you know what, uh, the Israel Adesanya, Kelvin Gastelum fight? That was in 2019, and that was a. I don't know if that was a, a lot of people pick for fight of the year, but it was definitely in the conversation for that one. That was a pay per view one also, so that should be on the plus. Um,
0: uh, what about Henry Cejudo versus Marlon Moraes? That's a good one too.
1: Okay, yeah, that's a pretty good one. Um, I'm trying to go back and, and think and remember what was what was happening back then. Uh, yeah, I mean the uh, man the. The Romero Costa one, when you talk about dudes acting like yahoos... hmm I mean, acting like yahoos in the best possible sense, though, because... Yeah,
0: that's why
1: I'm recommending it. This is, this is the, the point off in one direction and then punch you in the face fight for U.L. Romero. That's,
0: that's an iconic one. moment. Yeah.
1: You gotta watch that one. Put that one on the top of the list.
0: Next question, this one, this week, kind of a long one from Didier Drogba, so... Nice to hear formerly great strikers checking in, uh, thinking a lot about the aftermath of UFC 257 this weekend, as it is the rate as it is the rare UFC event these days where we get a solid build-up and then a free weekend to decompress on what we saw. While the majority of fans are focused on the diamond, dismantling the notorious and rightfully so, I can't help but think about what Michael Chandler did and what that says about everyone's favorite number two promotion, Bellator. As a proud member of the diehard Bellator contingent, We have maybe 12 members, including the Coker family. It's become clear in recent years that not only is Michael Chandler not the best 155-pounder in Bellator, see Patricio Pitbull's 2019 KO of the former Mizzou wrestler, But he has clearly lost a step since the peak of his powers. Yet just a week ago, here was Chandler absolutely sparking top six lightweight Dan Hooker in the first round, asserting himself among the elites in what is called the quote, the best division in MMA. However, us Bellator diehards know that fighters like Goti Yamaguchi and Brent Primus fared far better than Hooker did against Chandler. And there's reason to believe Bellator's Chandler was closer to his athletic prime. I'm just saying, is it time we put some real respect on what Scotty Cox and the boys have going on over there at the Viacom Fighting Championships? Please, discourse. Now, this is kind of an interesting question, Ben, and one that I know some other people have talked about online but uh to see michael chandler come into the ufc and be that successful against well regarded guy and a, a very durable guy in dan hooker not only says i think good things about michael chandler but what about patricio pitbull and like a guy who uh has been wickedly successful over there in bellator beaten michael chandler at this point like uh, i don't think it's out of the question to say that that pitbull might be the best lightweight in the world, especially in the absence of Habib Nurmagomedov, if we're going to, you know, if we're going to take him at his word and say that he's retired, that like that Pitbull will be right up there among the top two or three guys for, for number one, 155 pound fighter in the world. And we might we just might not know it because he's because he's fighting in Bellator.
1: Well, and might be up there as the best 145 pound guy in the world, too. I and mean, that's true. And. That I think that definitely, if you think about where he would fit in, in like a world featherweight rankings, he's in the top three with Volkanovsky and Holloway, probably. I was, when I was working on this story recently about uh talking to coaches on how they approach film study with fighters and asking them if they ever sat down to do film study on a prospective opponent and s- ended up watching the tape on the guy and going, well, I don't know how we're going to beat this guy, honestly. And one of them I can't I think maybe it was Dean Thomas who said that for him pitbull had been that guy where they watched him on tape trying to formulate a game plan to go against him and came away going shit he's good and i I mean I do think that you in that when in that context Bellator does res- deserve more respect for its roster than it gets like the highs are higher than people give it credit for but It's not that way across the board in all the divisions. There's a few divisions right now at Bellator. is like focused on and built up and to its credit, like kind of did it strategically. And in those divisions, it might, it like has some peaks, some some fighters in there who are as good or right there in the conversation with the people who are at the very top of the UFC. But if you still compare the entire rosters all the way across the board, not just like in every weight class, but like the depth of the rosters and everything, UFC still comes out ahead. But that doesn't mean that Bellator doesn't deserve – like being Bellator champion in one of those divisions still means a whole hell of a lot because you got to go through guys like that to get it.
0: Right. And yeah, they they don't have the depth that the UFC has, nor do I think that they really could have the depth that the UFC has. I don't think anybody could have the depth – that the UFC has except for the UFC. Uh, but also you got to remember just because a, a person signs a, a Bellator contract and is over there fighting in Bellator, whether it be Patricio Pitbull in two different weight classes, whether it be Michael Chandler, whether it be any of these other guys, it doesn't mean that they're just not as good as the people in the UFC. Like people wind up in Bellator f- for a lot of different reasons. And, and, you know, the, the high profile signings, the ones that get a lot of attention online are the, are the UFC cast offs, right? Guys like, uh, like Leoto Machida guys, like, uh, uh, you know, Tito Ortiz, when he goes over there, Chael Sonnen, when he goes over there, stuff like that. But like the truth is Bellator also signs a lot of young fighters. And like, if, if Bellator is the first organization to get to you and they, uh, they give you a solid contract offer and you go with it, like it doesn't, it has no bearing on whether or not you are as good as the, the fighters that that go on to fight in the UFC. So for all we know, you know, some of these guys are the best in the world at their respective weight classes. And, and we just don't really give them give them the props that they deserve. And, and because they don't have that amazing depth that the UFC has, we don't, you know, we don't give them this, the same kind of credence. But but like, as you say, like the brightest lights over there are some of the brightest lights in the sport, regardless of where they fight.
1: And we also know through experience that you got to be careful doing this sort of MMA math. Where you're like, well, this guy beat this guy fairly easily, and so this right. other dude lost like with a little tougher fight, and therefore he's better. Like it doesn't always work out that way, though. Did you see uh, or hear Dan Hooker's comments being asked about leaving his gloves in the cage after that fight? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, Dan Hooker, by the way, seems like a just a really good dude.
1: No, and it struck me as a really frank and honest uh, description of the motions that he was going through. Like, yeah, he took off his gloves in the moment after he lost, gets knocked out in the first round. It feels like, well, shit, that went terribly. Fuck this sport. I'm done with it. This is stupid. And then getting back to the hotel and realizing, well, you're not very good at anything else either. Like, this is kind of the best thing you got going for you. I especially love him talking about, like, oh, maybe I'll drink my sorrows away. And then in Abu Dhabi, going down to the bar and it's 20 bucks a beer. And you're thinking, well, shit, that won't work either. And I (laughs) appreciate his ability to give us that honest look of, like, the post-fight emotions going through it. And that maybe as a good reminder that, yeah, hey. People, you get a little worked up after a loss, and just because the guy says, like, screw it, I'm never doing this again, this, I'm done with this stupid sport, maybe we shouldn't hold him to that every single time. <laughs> like, maybe yeah. we, we have to understand, it's a lot on the line, it's a big stressful moment, and give him a break a little bit.
0: Yeah, I liked the part where uh, Dan Hooker was talking about how leaving the cage in frustration and saying he never wants to do it again, and then getting back to the hotel and realizing, well, this is the thing that you're best at, though. Yeah. Like, you can't really do anything else. And then he says, painted myself into a bit of a corner. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I was like, we've all been there, Dan. Yeah, not, absolutely. not in this specific situation, but like, uh, I feel you. Yeah. Next question this week comes to us from Earl Schaefer, who writes, I'm not going to be naive enough to ask if you guys have ever bet on sports and MMA. I just assume you have. I know a lot of MMA journalists, broadcasters, coaches, and even fighters who bet on fights. I'm just curious how it affects your viewing experience. Have you ever bet against someone you liked and felt like shit when they got their ass kicked? uh, Or did you find yourself kind of mad at the fighter for costing you money? Uh, for a shitty Singapore card, Singapore card at 4am, do you ever just place a bet? So you have a reason to watch an otherwise meaningless fight. Uh, please discourse you degenerates. Um, to be honest with you, I haven't bet on a fight in a long, long time. I don't know if I've bet on one after I became a journalist, not just be, not necessarily because I want to say like I'm a paragon of virtue or whatever, but like, I don't know, man. At least back when I was doing it, maybe the technology and the 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 feel of it has improved. But like online betting, just felt kind of shady. And like I always wondered, like it it, would, it was always a situation where it seemed way easier to put your money in than to get your money out.
1: Yeah, absolutely and, was. Uh,
0: I w- and eventually I just came to the conclusion, like, what if, like, what if you won a big bet and they just didn't pay you? Like, what would you do? What recourse would you have? And like, I don't know. I just kind of, but when I used to go to Vegas as a fan, I would put bets down all the time. And it was, it it does, uh, it definitely increases your awareness of the, of the competition and your interest <laughs> yeah. level in it. Yeah. And in fact, I would say like, if you are broke in Vegas, if you only have, you know, whatever, 20 bucks, like you could do a lot worse than just go into a sports book and, and putting a bet down on whatever sporting event is about to start. Yeah. Because then they just let you sit there and they'll give you some watered down drinks and you don't have to be out losing $20 a shot at, at uh, you know, uh, Blackjack or whatever. Yeah. I
1: had that same experience like back in the kind of mid-2000s, 2005, 6, 7-ish, uh, betting online on MMA fights a couple times and then realizing – like I remember at one point like, oh, start – I put like – 60 bucks in there or something and I get it to like 200 something dollars and I'm like, okay, this is a good point. Get my money out. And the options they gave me, it was like wire transfer with the exorbitant fee, courier check was one of the options. It was, there was no, like all of them came with these high fees that for the amount of money I was taking out would basically just eat into whatever your winnings were. And so I was like, well, I'll just leave it in there until I, until I build it up enough to make it worth all that fees to get it out. And then of course lost it all that way. And like, Oh, okay. Now I understand why, why this is a business and why it works that way. But I'll say, uh, because Montana recently instituted sports betting and now has like betting terminals in bars and stuff, especially one thing people probably don't understand if you don't live in Montana is that basically every bar is also a casino. In Montana, like there's at least one like Keno machine or something like that, and sometimes a lot more than one. And so there's one that like two blocks from my house that has a sports betting terminal. And so to kind of see just how it works and everything, I went down there and placed a bet on a fight. And one thing I realized is that the odds you see online, like you go to bestfightodds.com, which is my go to source for betting odds. And there it's comparing all these online sports books, like there's like 10 or 12 of them. That'll show you odds from and their odds will vary a little bit, but they're all kind of the same and they're all way better than the odds that you get from the online terminal where they know you only have this one option. They're just telling you, like, here's what the odds are. And it's like the underdogs are nowhere near as long as they are on the online betting ones. Or the, the favorites are way longer than they are. Uh, and so you kind of realize, like, OK, it's a shittier deal in that regard. But, you know, I kind of just wanted to do it to see how it works. Like put 20 bucks. I never want to see again. And uh, and I won. And then you go back in there and it's very like easy. I could see how somebody could get into it. I guess is what <laughs> I'm saying. Cause you go in there, you just take your slip, look, you scan it and it gives you the slip that basically says, I won. You go up to the bartender, give it to them. They give you your money. You walk out of there and you go like, okay, I could see getting into this. I could see, in fact, Chad Dundas, maybe when all of this is over, I put in quotes of a Saturday afternoon, maybe you walk down there, and be like, Hey, is there a hockey game or something about to start on the TV? Fine, Maybe, let me take twenty bucks I never want to see again, bet it on that thing on the terminal. It's over there on the corner. Then sit here, have a few drinks and some free popcorn, and watch the damn thing. That seems like not a bad way to spend an afternoon.
0: There you go. I used to have a friend uh, who would always bet against his favorite fighter whenever he would fight, and I was like, man, why, why do you do that? And he was, and they were not big bets; they were just, you know. 20 50 bucks whatever uh and he was like well if my guy wins i'm gonna be happy so i don't have to worry about it and like if he loses at least this way like you know i'll make some money like so i can he was kind of it'll soften the blow a little bit that i won the won some money so it was like he was he was putting a bet down against his own emotional uh depths yes yeah. like his own sorrow he was he was ready to like to soften the blow if if his guy lost
1: some real emotional trickery on yourself there
0: I know. Uh, Next question this week comes to us from Ike Turner, who writes, I read an enlightening, frankly, lovely article about Diego Garrio, former MMA, current bare knuckle fighter. Uh, this very issue, the issue of transgender, or in this case, just drag representation, has been a consistent stumbling block for MMA. In other words, many, many bad takes. So brass tacks, what kind of timeline are we looking at where trans fighters or even LGBTQ plus community in general would feel as welcome in these gyms and cages as they have in other areas of public life? This is no longer a dirty secret about an eccentric uncle any longer. In other words, Uh this is a tough question to answer. I don't know if you've looked around, Ben, at the at the MMA community, but there are a lot of people out there who you might say are not as progressive as perhaps people in certain other walks of life.
1: That's true. That is absolutely true. Um, I'm just now looking at this article. I think – are we talking about this Vice article? Because I, I just Googled Diego Guerrero's name yeah. and came up with this. Yep. Okay. That's the one. Okay. Um, I did not see this before. But, yeah, I mean – it's we, we've had this conversation before, right? When people ask, like, when is there going to be a, a gay male MMA fighter? And we're like, we probably had gay male MMA fighters. We just haven't had out gay male MMA fighters. And or we have had some, but they were, you know, minor or low level figures, like not somebody at the highest levels of the sport. Um You'd like to think that. Even though I, I recognize what you say is true, that there's it's not a super regressive community or anything that people could still be cool about it or at least if they're going to be shitty about it be shitty in the way that we're always shitty like you know meme them when they when they knock out if they, if they if they get knocked out after they've talked a bunch of shit stuff like that and like leave the other stuff alone i would i would hope for that i would hope that we could just be shitty in regards to the fighting in the way that we always are yeah where we're like we we everybody thinks they know what game plan you should have followed that kind of shitty not like i hate you for this for personal reasons that having nothing to do with fighting i would hope that would be the case and that's the best i would dare hope for i guess is that we would be just this baseline shitty to you for completely different reasons and yet even that i realize is probably too much to hope for
0: yeah we're a ways away from that i think and like you know, you just got to reflect that, like, in Montana, where we live, and in Texas, the state legislatures are trying to pass laws to keep uh, trans athletes from competing even in, like, cross country or, like, girls basketball in at the high school level. Uh, and then you consider just the nature of MMA fighting and, like, uh, the the fact that since you're dealing with a physical fight, it seems to change our relationship with that's with the sport in, in several different ways. But like, I think we were a long way, unfortunately from the, from the community of athletes and like owners, frankly, uh, because I don't know if you've noticed this either, but some of the people who own these companies maybe aren't the most uh, forward thinking individuals as well. But like, I think we're a long way from like accepting a a trans fighter into the, into the MMA ranks. Well, fortunately
1: you remember the, The situation with Fallon Fox. All Uh,
0: too well, sir.
1: Yeah. I mean, newer fans might not remember that, but but we did have a a transgender fighter in Fallon Fox. And it was the one where I think a lot of people – I remember talking to Shannon Knapp about it and saying, like, what do you think about this? And she said, I think it's uncharted territory, and I'm not really sure – like, I I would have to give this one more thought. And it seemed like it was – you know, it it was – Tricky in all the ways that you would have expected to, but then also in other ways that you didn't where it was like, OK, um, the what do we expect of the, the trans fighter? Like people seemed like wanted to hear her say certain things that she wasn't going to say and other people who are just never going to accept it just based on the idea where they're just like, oh, geez, she's, she's, this is all a ruse to beat up women was a a common refrain that you would hear about Fallon Fox. Like this person changed their entire life and identity and went through all this difficult stuff because they wanted to punch women in the face legally so badly, which like, if that's the the place that your mind goes to says more about you and th- that it does about anyone else that you would think like, oh, that's, we all want to punch women so badly. Of course, like this person just wanted it bad enough to go through all this stuff. And just like, that's weird, bro. That's weird that you even, that your mind even went there to begin with. Uh, but, it, it did make you, we went through that whole thing and then it just kind of like faded away and you don't hear much about it from or about Fallon Fox anymore. But it did show us like, okay, the, that is an area where fighting is probably going to, to a lot of people is going to feel different than it would be in other sports. Like they might yeah. be more accepting of it if it were in a non physical violence right there in your face kind of sport.
0: Next question this week comes to us from Andrew Millington, who writes the Silva Diaz anniversary had me thinking about this. Who are your all time weirds mobile slash weirds mobile moments in MMA history? Brian Ebersole and the hero taking the piss out of Chris Lytle. A noted super serious dude was a favorite of mine. Uh, well, I guess we already uh, mentioned Ben the, uh, the Yoel Romero, Paulo Costa fight. Like that's a pretty, that's a pretty good weirds mobile versus weirds mobile fight. Uh, anything Ryan Hall does is probably deserves to be on the list, but, uh, you got any favorites? You got any favorite, just like weird, weird moments? Uh, well, I mean,
1: it, it depends what you mean. Cause there's some weird moments where you're like, I'm not really having a whole lot of fun here with this kind of weird, like Diego Sanchez showing up with his breathing coach. Okay, and that is, yeah. Uh, or. <laughs> You know, Husamar Paul Harris was involved in a lot of weirds mobile moments yeah. that were not super great. Yeah. Because, but it got to be a thing where whenever he'd fight, you'd be kind of be like, "Okay, what's going to happen this time? It's going to be something weird," and it was amazing how many times it kept happening. Like you, especially when it was the stuff where like him holding on to submissions too long, and it's like, man, you've been like. Punished by organizations and athletic commissions and everybody gets mad at you over and over again. You're surely you're not going to do it again this time, are you? Surely. And then he would. And it was just like un- unbelievable. But as far as like the fun kind of Weirdsmobile fights, there was something in that Nick Diaz-Takanori Gomi fight. Still the greatest no contest of all time. Where when Gomi is just blasting away at Nick Diaz early on, it opens up a huge cut in his face. And you, you could see Gomi is getting tired and yet also like getting kind of frustrated at Nick Diaz's ability to take this punishment. And there are moments in the fight where he seems to be gesturing to the referee as if to say like, come on, what the hell? Like, how am I expected to still keep continuing to fight this guy? Look at his face. He's so beat up. And yet Nick Diaz is still doing his Nick Diaz stuff to you. And then eventually gets him in the go-go plot at the end and just like, okay, that was just an insane, crazy fight in all the, the best and fun ways.
0: Yeah, I guess if you're going to toss out not fun weirds Mobile moments, you also got to mention Paulo Filo. Okay. Uh, maybe having like a psychotic break in the WEC cage with Chael Sonnen when they were fighting for the middleweight title. That was pretty darn weird. That was pretty
1: darn weird. Also, most it's, things Bob Sapp has done.
0: Yeah, I mean, you go far enough back into the history of MMA and it's just like, and it's basically... Every fight is a mobile fight, right? Like it would be like, oh, this guy's going to drag a cross out to the cage. Okay. <laughs> or that, that seems fine.
1: Go and watch kind of like any Charles Bennett fight, especially from the pride Bushido days. There's some weirdsmobile for your ass right there, Chad this
0: Next question this week comes from Lotus from Texas, who writes, This weekend was a weekend off for me, so I spent some time doing nothing. Eventually, I saw that XMMA, whatever the fuck that is, was having a free broadcast of their event, and James Vick was fighting on it. I waited till the event was over and logged on to see how it went. Not well. Here is my actual question, though. James Vick and Kevin Holland actually started at the same gym in Texas. There are some similarities between them, but Holland seems to have a bigger upside. When you look at how things are going, Vic with five straight losses, four by KO, do you think there are some lessons for guys like Holland to see how fast it can go? I know he's said he's willing to take any fight, but I wonder if he sees the arc of Vic's career and says, maybe I should start negotiating more money now. Uh, please discuss. And then, of course, he says, P.S., how y'all fuckers not even going to talk about John, John Anik looking like an off-brand Stanley Tucci with that damn mustache? Uh, I'll tell you one thing that professional fighters don't ever really seem to think, and that is when they see someone else going through uh, terrible hardships or like the downside of their career, it seems like professional fighters almost never think that could be me. Yeah. Or they almost never think that will be me. Uh, And the only thing that I can really ascribe that to is that it takes such mental focus, fortitude, and confidence to even compete in this sport in the first place that fighters don't even want to open a tiny door to the part of their mind where that kind of thinking can exist. Uh, But should they? Well, yeah. Probably they should.
1: Yeah. But then, if they started doing that calculation, don't you think most of them would have to arrive at the inevitable conclusion that maybe this this is not so great? Like that's yeah. and that's
0: I, and I guess I should also point out, like, in the cases where it does seem to happen, it's us or it's typically or often because the fighter knows someone personally. And so maybe in the case of like Kevin Holland and James Vick, if they do know each other and they did train at the same gym in Texas, maybe a guy like Kevin Holland would look at James Vick and be like, Oh, I know that guy from the gym and now he's he's fallen on hard times, maybe I should like go about my own business a little bit differently. But like, it's, it's a lot to ask, man, for these guys who are uh, in the prime of their careers. And especially because in almost all athletics, when you are in the prime of your career, if you are one of these people who is at the highest level, you are used to the rules not applying to you, yeah. right? Like, even if you like, it goes for like a football player or a baseball player, an MMA fighter that gets to the, to the to the pinnacle, of the sport, to the UFC, like you are used to beating the odds, right? Like, cause you've done it every step of the way. And so you get to this point where you're like, well, that's not going to be me. Like I've been able to beat the odds up to this point. Why wouldn't I just continue to do it until I'm ready to say I'm done?
1: Yeah. I mean, how many times you see these guys, basically their answer to stuff like that is I'm just built different. Right. You know, and they would say that even if you'd be like, Oh, hey, if you started with this guy in the same gym, like in Texas, and doesn't he seem like a cautionary tale that would be relevant to you? It'd be like, Oh, no, no, I remember. I like, I was, I was better than him then. So of course I'm going to be better than him now. And I'm not worried about it. I was thinking about how when I did this story once about a fighter and I, I apologize. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he, he was killed in a, in a, like a hit and run car accident. And, uh, the, his family sent, his brain to the, the brain health study thing that had identified all the, the early CTE markers and everything and the, the tau proteins that led to CTE. And they said that he had it, that he had the, the early tau protein buildup of the, that shows signs of CTE. And I remember doing a story where I've talked to teammates of his about how they felt about that revelation, especially because some of them was like, you have more fights than he does. You have more years in the, in this sport and in this business than he does. How does it make you feel to know he had this brain health thing that everybody's worried about and did, probably did not know about it? And you have probably been hit in the head more than he had. And like, doesn't, does that make you concerned? And there were really two answers that I got back. One was no, it doesn't. And I refuse to consider it long enough for it to be possible for me to start getting concerned. Like, please stop talking about it to me. That was one response. And the other response was, yes, it does make me concerned, but at this point I'm already in it and I'm in it pretty deep. So what am I going to do? Like, I'm not going to quit now and, you know, go to law school. And if what you're saying is true, that I'm, I have more time in it and I've already done this damage to myself, then the damage is done. And like, it's not, I'm not going to make it any better by stopping now. And it was just like both those responses kind of surprised me. But then when I kind of thought about it, it was just like, what else do you want them to say? Like if they were inclined to look at it in a different point of view, they probably wouldn't have become pro fighters to begin with. Like they, you you have to have some of that mentality to even want to make a career out of this. And those responses maybe shouldn't have been so surprising.
0: Just a couple more questions here. This one from Devin Scott, who writes, I was thinking that TJ Dillashaw's hashtag just plain doping suspension ended as of January 18th, 2021. You know who else noticed? I'm glad you asked. None other than bantamweight champ, Peter yawn. I'll leave that, uh, for you to discourse side note. Can I get Tilly Dills's contact info being over 40? I no longer need a reason to wake up sore. My hip hurts. And I want to know what Dr. Dills would prescribe, uh, so this, yeah, it as it was I said at the top of the show, the bantamweight title picture might get a little bit more interesting. Ben, what do you think about the return here of TJ Dillashaw, uh, who obviously has been out for some time after he he'd, uh, tested positive for EPO?
1: Yeah, don't you feel like he's got to go win one, though, before we even talk about him in the title picture?
0: For he's, sure. You can't just stick a guy into a title fight unless he's Conor McGregor.
1: Well, he kind of seems to think that maybe you could, but I don't think you can, especially when he's been gone two years because of the doping suspension. You gotta show, prove to everybody you can show up, make weight, win a fight against a fellow, like a top 10 contender or something while you're fighting clean. And that's gonna be the big question. You just gotta show up and and prove that you could do it now, the same way you could back then when everybody was looking at you going, how far back do we have to assume he was doping? You know, and if you do that, then fine, you can start to talk about title contention kind of stuff. But you gotta do that first.
0: I agree. Uh, last question this week comes to us from the voice of Garcia. Okay. Forgive me if I may be jinxing this, but we all saw Connor lost. And one of the main reasons is DW holding him off for a year slash inactivity. Do you think there's a chance the same thing might happen to Nganu when he fights Stepe? since the last time Francis fought was only worth under 30 seconds last year? I know it's two different fighters, but I can't help but feel that if Dana does not learn from these lessons and continues not to put his fighters to work while they're at their prime, he will lose his prospects and that much more. Uh, and let's face it, they need Francis to win the same way they needed Conor to win. Please discourse and have an awesome day. Uh, you know what? We will blame, blame Dana White for a lot of stuff yeah. on this show. But I don't think that it's his fault that Conor McGregor shows up to to fight in the UFC once a year, once every couple years, stuff like that. I'm sure that if the UFC could get Conor McGregor to have that season he was talking about, that uh, they would like nothing more than for him to fight three times a year, because that would mean a, you know, potentially three million-plus selling pay-per-views for the UFC. So I don't think it's the UFC or Dana White that's keeping Conor McGregor out of the cage. I mean, I, I
1: won't say that it's not a consideration, I'm sure, on their parts that— we can't have fans in the arena right now and we're going to do a Conor McGregor fight and the live gate on Conor McGregor's fights are usually pretty big. But you're right that once they saw that this was going to be an ongoing thing where you're not going to have a full arena of 20,000 fans paying you like an $8 million gate or something for a long time, that then they kind of took that consideration out and it was, you know, there are other reasons why it's hard to get Conor McGregor in the cage super often. And with Francis and Ngannou, that one seems kind of like, a little bit of just the circumstances working against you because he gets himself in a situation where there's nothing for him to do but a title fight at this point. You know, it's Francis Ngannou being Francis Ngannou is why his fights only last like 30 seconds or a minute. And that's one of the great things about him. But it's also one of the things that makes it feel like we just don't get to see him work that much. But... We have been in this situation with Stipe for a while and with the heavyweight title picture in a while where you have a fight, but then you have to go a long time between them before the guy is ready to fight again. And it's because they're going in there and their heavyweights beating the shit out of each other, man. And Stipe is not exactly a young guy, and he doesn't want to get in there with somebody who might take his damn head off if, like, his retina is not, like, working well. You can't blame him for that. Like, he's going to want to make sure that he is totally healthy before he agrees to another fight. And so it takes some time, and then... But there's no reason to have Francis Ngannou just keep beating people up just for the sake of it when he's already proven that the only fight that makes sense for him anymore is another title fight. So, and I don't necessarily agree that the UFC needs Francis to win that one. I mean, I think you can make a lot of hay out of a Francis Ngannou John Jones title fight, but you could also do a whole hell of a lot worse than say, here's Stipe Miocic, statistically and everything, the greatest heavyweight champion and UFC history, and he's going to fight John Jones, the greatest light heavyweight champion in UFC history. If you can't sell that, then you can't sell anything in this business. Like that, that that's a pay-per-view that you can do quite well with. And I think you're probably going to run into this, depending on who wins and how you're probably going to run into the same issue where you have those guys fight, in March, and then they're going to need a few months off before you can go ahead and book that John Jones one. It's going to be another lengthy layoff. But that's just the situation. That's just how it is, man. I mean, like, I don't I don't know what fix you think that Dana White could force that would be better than just waiting until the guys are healthy enough ready to do it.
0: Yeah. And uh, I'm not tremendously worried about inactivity when it comes to Francis Ngannou, I guess. Um, maybe if you get 15, 20 minutes into a fight with Stipe Miocic, the fact that your only fight of 2020 was was super short could be a factor but I also don't think there's anyone out there who doubts whether or not Francis Ngannou is about this life. Like I think he is probably training his ass off all the time, being in the gym. And with Conor McGregor, it's not just that he only fights once or twice a year. It's that he's got a lot of other stuff going on in his life, right? Like he's out here trying to sail around the world to, raise awareness for water safety and like uh it seems like he is getting accused of crimes pretty frequently <laughs> and and like he's got a whiskey thing that that uh he at least has to make appearances for here and there like with McGregor I don't know if it's just it's just that he doesn't fight that often but also like he doesn't seem like he is has a monk like focused laser honed in on mixed martial arts like he's got a lot of other stuff going on I think Francis Ngannou wants that title, wants to be able to be that guy and get that money for various reasons. And I think that he is uh is obsessed with it, really. Like, I think he's probably just training and working out all the time. And so, uh, I don't know. I'm just not, I'm not particularly worried about inactivity with him. I think gas tank could be an issue if you get deep into a fight, but who, like, they're heavyweights, man. You get 20 minutes into a fight, big fellas are going to be tired. Yeah. So, I guess I'm not all that concerned about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, me neither. I mean, as long as you put in the work and the wrestling practice to get there, that's the part that we wonder about, right?
0: That is going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Thanks for uh, tuning in. Thanks for sending in your questions. For everybody that did, we got to as many of them as we could. Uh, We'll be back all this week over on the uh, Patreon page Wednesday for the live chat. Are we going to do a movie club this week?
1: Yeah. We could do a movie club this week. We're going to do time travel, right? That's what we settled on?
0: Yep. We're going to do a month of time travel themed movies. So take that for what you will. Opens a lot of possibilities up. And then Friday we'll be back again for the Power Hour. So if you haven't joined the team, get over there. Patreon.com slash co-main event. Three easy tiers to sign up and support the podcast. Keep us ad-free. Keep the discourse unfettered. Keep this train on the tracks. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out.